Welcome back to the program. Think about advertising for new cars. Better yet, think about looking at a new car in the showroom. That experience is all about possibilities and dreams. What that car can do for you. Not just where it will take you geographically, but where it'll take you emotionally. From the days of Madman to today, that's what the dream has always been about. But usually like the disconnect between the dream and life, the car takes on a life of its own, often far removed from the ad or the showroom fantasy. Few cars have conjured up this iconography more than the 1957 Chevy, a car that personified our relationship to the automobile and the infinite possibilities and freedom that it gave us in post-war America. Today, we're going to talk about that dream and the reality of that car with my guest, Earl Swift. Earl Swift has written five books, including The Big Roads. He's a residential fellow at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities at the University of Virginia and the author of Autobiography, a classic car, an outlaw motorhead, and 57 years of the American dream. It is my pleasure to welcome Earl Swift back to this program. Earl, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, I'm so excited to be here. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about this fascination that that we as a country have with cars, this kind of iconography that for almost as long as we can remember, the car has been a symbol of so much more than transportation. Oh, it has. It has. And and I guess maybe horses worry for the car. It's, uh, uh, you know, we're unique in the world in terms of our uh, the distances that our settlement prompted us to, to travel. And uh, and we're also unique in the world in, in, in the sense that the whole westward expansion of the population kind of instilled in us a, a kind of a collective wonderlust that you don't find elsewhere. And uh, so the car kind of was, it, it was a no-brainer that when, uh, you know, at the turn of the last century, the, the car really became available to the masses we we just latch onto it like a like a leech and uh and uh, it is our uh it's our escape it's it's the one place that most of us find solitude on a daily basis right. it's uh it's more than a mere possession it's it's a partner it's our trusty steed and somewhere along the way i guess in the in the mid to late 50s advertising took that to another level well you know it, it was it, it was always a part of, of pushing cars. Uh, you know, image was, if you go back to the old Packard ads of the early 20s, you know, Packard's motto was, ask the man who owns one. Um, you know, the, uh, they, they were always trading on the notion that buying a car was more than just mere transportation. It was assuming an image that that car tried to project. And, of course, different makes of cars, different models of cars, attempted to project a very specific image, and, and, and that image would vary from, from those of the competition. And in the case of, uh, of the cars of, of the late 50s, what you see is uh, uh, a lot of aviation-oriented uh, gigaws, a lot of kind of space-age uh, ornamentation uh, slapped onto the sheet metal. And more than just... Uh, piggybacking on on the space program and you know the first satellites uh, it really was about projecting an image of of optimism uh, you know forward-looking let's nose into the future and uh, you know if you were to get into a 57 Chevy that was that was the idea you were buying into you were buying a car that was aimed at the future 
And talk about the 57 Chevy, and what was it about that car that was unique even among what we're talking about? Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting. If you go back and you read um, you know, Popular Mechanics or any of the car magazines in 1957, the, the 57 Chevy does not really stand out. It was not an instant classic. It was not recognized by the buying public as anything particularly special compared to other cars that were on sale at the time. In fact, the Ford, which in my way of thinking is just plain ugly compared to the 57 Chevy, actually outsold it. But the the car is, uh, it just has a, a, a bunch of elements that work particularly well together to our eyes years later in capturing a moment. It's got those giant meat cleaver fins sticking out the back of it, which are probably the best proportioned and most nicely shaped fins ever put on, on cars at a time when fins were on just about every car. It's got a, uh, it's got a front end that's just, it's, it's got a very wide mouth that's, that's uh, framed in chrome. And there's something about that front end that is both a brawny and oddly feminine. It's got hooded headlights that kind of almost give you the impression of, of eyelashes. And, uh, and you know, it sat low, it was wide, and it had a new engine that made it pretty fast. It also, in in so many ways, looked like the future. There was something about its shape that was just, as you talked about before, projecting forward. It was. It, 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 of course, any until uh, until the '57 Chevy and its two immediate predecessors came along, there were still vestigial fenders on Chevrolets, which were a leftover of the running board days. Those were dumped in, in the mid '50s, and so this was. Um, the last of what they call the shoebox Chevys. It, it was uh, it was a very clean design for for the 1950s. Um, as as busy as it can seem to us today by the standards of of new Mazdas and Toyotas, it um, it for its time was a pretty stripped down kind of kind of style. And uh, and then it, there were all sorts of uh, nods, as I mentioned to to military aviation in particular, there are, there are mock gun sights slotted into the hood. Right. It's got uh, little warheads on the on the front bumpers. And the, and the fins, if you were to put the car up against it, you know, beside a, an F-86 Sabre jet, the fins are pretty unmistakably modeled on, uh, on a Cold War fighter jet. How much of all of this was intentional? I mean, if you go back and talk to the designers of these cars... What do they tell you about what they were thinking about when they designed them? That's a very good question, Jeff. And, and um, I think that there's a lot of uh, kind of retroactive projection done today that you, you see a design like this that is so overtly uh, aviation-oriented. And you think, well, of course they were they were just looking at pictures of airplanes when they designed it. But really, um, the 57 Chevys, design in large measure uh, was uh, developed in uh, years earlier in 1952 1953 and um, it, it wasn't really as you know uh, intentional as as one might think it now that the car was the third year in a three-year design cycle that began with the 55 Chevy and and GM did this with all of their cars. They'd introduce a new car in the first year. The second year, they'd just change the front and, and the front end and the, the tail a little bit. And then the third end, 
the third year they give it another tweak and, and on the fourth year the design cycle would start anew with a completely new model. So this was the tail end of of a design that had been in play for a number you know, for a number of years uh, when it came down the pike. So it was a modification of, of the two previous models. And as such, it uh you know, this wasn't a, a a clean slate design by any means. It was just reshaping some sheet metal to uh, to have this car stand out from the previous year's model. It's a little more seat of the pants than, than one would think. And even this three-year cycle, if you look at the, the Chevys that preceded it, I mean, you see the evolution. You see the similarities. It didn't spring whole-blown from, as you say, just sitting around looking at airplanes. Absolutely. Yeah, if you look at a 55 Chevy, you can see the bones of the 57. They're staring you right in the face, and, and they did a wonderful job of masking that, making it not so obvious. But if you know to look for it, it's you, know, you can't miss it. And the idea, at least we forget, was that you had to have a new car every couple of years because you had to keep up with the style. Well, that was, uh, <laughs> of course, that dovetailed with the, the state of engineering in the, in the late 50s, too. Cars didn't last very long. And uh, and anyone who suggests today that you know the cars of yore were so much better than this plastic junk we're driving now is is just plain wrong. The uh, <laughs> the cars of of yore just weren't built to uh, to take much of a beating. They weren't built to withstand the weather. You know, a car with a hundred thousand miles back in 1957 was a car that had been driven hard and driven long, and um, it was a relative rarity to to roll into six figures, which really brings it right up to the whole issue of autobiography, your new book, in taking this 57 Chevy and looking at its history through 13 owners and what it was like in, in its most recent incarnation. Yeah, well, it's it's an unusual book in that it is not a book about the 57 Chevy. It's a book about one particular 57 right. Chevy and, and the parade of people who have owned that one car. and. What I was aiming to get at was was a bigger story, kind of the story of all of us, really, um, by looking at this one car and this this strange, curious cross section of humanity that shared it, and and really kind of uh, managed to do that. I hope um, it's a uh, it's a story in which you really see how, as a car ages, the sort of person who buys it changes, uh, the relationship of that person to a car changes. Um, you know, it's a it, it's our uh, our love affair with cars is is a very weird kind of um, kind of relationship that we don't have with any other possession. In what ways? Well, we seem to uh, imbue our our vehicles with uh, with personalities, with almost human traits. You know, you get your car gets you up a really steep hill. You pat its dashboard. Um, there are a lot of people who give their cars nicknames. They're sanctuaries. Um, it, it goes beyond just being stuck in your car for hours in a tough commute. Uh, it The car becomes an almost sacred space where you do some deep thinking. And uh, and and it's, uh, you know, I, I, I talk about in the book having run across in a, a junkyard parking lot uh, an old Nova that I sat in for a while, and I, I found in the struts that originally held the, the headliner in place over the driver's seat, a little packet of paper folded up. When I unfolded them, it was this this kind of 
meditative note written by a previous owner, kind of kind of rules to live by almost, uh, uh, sort of one-word reminders of, of living right that had just been tucked up in there. And I, you wouldn't see that tucked into your coffee machine. You know, it's just not, you don't have the same sort of relationship with it. And I think people can relate to it in terms of the feeling they have when they get a new car and get rid of an old one, when they're, when they're at the dealership or wherever it may be, and they're taking all their possessions out of one car and moving it into the new car. It is a very weird feeling sometimes. It's bittersweet. We know our cars, our relationship goes through a number of predictable stages, and they're they're comparable to those of a doomed marriage. Because almost always, when you buy a car, it's after you've been consumed with some level of lust for that car, and then that lust over time gives way to a to an abiding love, where you show your car off, you baby it. Um, that love again over time gives way to a companionable reliance and this is you know that's a long stage that can last a dozen years or longer in which you depend on your car but you're no longer really feeling love for it you're just your partners you know uh, and then eventually years down the road that companionable reliance will be shaken when the car lets you down and you'll enter a, a fourth stage heartache which has three sub stages those being doubt disappointment and disgust and disgust is is roughly uh, equivalent of abandonment. It's at that point that you take off the plates and leave the car smoking on the side of the road. The irony, I suppose, that's inherent in that is the way in which cars were sold to us early on. And as you say, part of it was that they weren't built to last. But also this idea of with the way the models changed, you had to have a new car every couple of years. So on the one oh, yeah. on the one hand. The cars were being imbued with these human qualities, and they, it was all about the relationship we had with our cars. And yet, at the same time, we were being told we had to trade them in often. And there's a disconnect there that's kind of interesting. Well, the, the GM practiced what it called dynamic obsolescence, uh, which was uh, with the label that Harley Earl, their chief stylist, came up for the the strategy of, of really not changing the cars a whole lot mechanically, but reinventing their their sheet metal in such a way that the the buyer was given the impression that uh, something new and wonderful was waiting in the showroom, and you know what he already drove was simply not new and wonderful enough, and uh, and so they they attempted to to stoke the fires of lust in the buying public, uh, you know, as a matter of course, the 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 trick was to build a car uh, that was good enough to be safe and and to drive for three or four years, but not so good that a, a buyer would want to hold on to it past that three or four year point, and um, and at the same time would fall victim to the to the company's hard sell on on image and you know the. The image was all about how you would look and how others would see you as you as you sat in that car, as you drove that car, what especially members of the other sex would think of you. Mm -hmm. Do you think, and you, you've talked to a lot of people in working on this book and looking at the whole car culture as sort of a subset of it, that the romance of cars is lost on a younger generation today? I don't know that I'd call it robots. I, I, I don't think that the 
romance of driving is lost. I mean, the fact is that we can drive better now than we've ever been able to drive in the past. Our cars go faster. They handle better. The driving experiences it can be pretty thrilling to a degree that wasn't possible in 1957. Um, and I don't think that, you know, if anything, I think our relationship with our cars has gotten deeper uh, in recent years in, in so far as we keep our cars for a heck of a lot longer. I, um, I finally sold a Toyota wagon that I had driven for 15 years, just a couple of years ago. And, uh, and it pained me to do it. I mean, it, it was time for that car to go, but I, I, um, you know, if if there is automotive romance, I guess that's what I felt for that that little station wagon. Um, I fully expect that I'll be driving the the car I drive now for at least another ten years. And yet, as we urbanize, as more and more people move to cities, as there is more focus on cars as just basic transportation, and more concern about fuel economy, and more interest in public transportation, something does seem different about car culture. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it used to be that you could pop the hood in a car and look and look inside and <laughs> identify the parts. And if you were a tinkerer, you could you could soup up your car and, um, and build a hot rod. Kind of tough to do that with a modern Civic, although you know, <laughs> there's a whole tuner culture out there that does it. Uh, but when I, I have a, a Toyota Camry with a 3.5 liter V6, and when I pop the hood, I, I can point out the battery, and that is about it. How did you gather? All of the provenance on this car, this 57 Chevy that you write about through its 13 owners. Tell a little bit about that. Well, a lot of it, Jeff, was, uh, was, was luck, pure and simple. Uh, I, I can claim no great reportorial chops for, for pieces of it because, uh, you know, it's, it's not like tracing the ownership of a house where you have uh, a deed transfers that are kept down at the county courthouse that you can go and, and look up. Most DMVs shred their records after a couple of title transfers or after five years. And uh, and so you have to, if you're going to do this, if you're going to trace the ownership of an old car, you have to find that car that has been owned by people, each of whom remembers enough about the person he or she bought from that you can piece together who that person was and then repeat the process over and over and over again. And that's what happened. I... I happened to find a 57 Chevy in which every owner remembered just enough, if not a name, just enough about the person he or she bought it from that I could, uh, with a, a, a modicum of detective work, identify that person and then, uh, and then go to that person and going all the way back to the original owner. Tell us about the last owner, the condition the car was in when, uh, when he got it. Well, the, the, Last owner was Tommy Arney, who um, is really the main human character of the book, and he bought the car about eight years ago now. And when he did, it was so far gone, Jeff, that if you had seen it, you would have said, "There's nothing here to scrap, let alone save." It had become a skeleton, a rust brown skeleton. Uh, birds had nested in its seat. Um, holes had been punched in, in its floor and, and a chain snake through the holes to hold the transmission in place because all of the you know, the hardware that had done that initially had been removed. It didn't have an exhaust. The engine hadn't turned over in years. The whole thing was um, uh, flaking with rust like a pastry. It was, it was in miserable condition. Was there anything there really worth saving? 
Well, a, uh, a vast majority of, of people looking at that Hulk would have said no. That um, that if anything, you might have been able to scrounge some parts off of it, scavenge it for for the salvation of another car. But but Tommy Arney also knew that it had a provenance. He knew that it had passed through twelve hands before his, and this is a guy who for whom um, that constitutes American history, and you know, kind of in a very tangible form. And he decided that it was worth it to him, if not anyone else to try to save it, to, to, to perform a miracle, really, on the thing. And, uh, and so in uh, 2010, he began work on it. And I really can't say too much about whether or not he succeeded in that effort, because it kind of gives away the end of the book. Right. But, um, but it, he certainly devoted a great deal of his attention to this seemingly um, irredeemable piece of machinery. And a bit of money as well. A lot of money. He's, he spent <laughs> um, a minimum of $40,000 uh, know, on the car and, uh, and you know, did, did most of the work in-house, he and, uh, he and a couple of friends. Not like sending it to a, a fancy shop and, and, and paying for someone else to do it. That's, he, he manned the grinder and the, you know, the welding torch himself. What was your sense of how many of these cars, these 57 Chevys, are still on the road today? Well, there, you know, a surprising number, really, uh, of this particular model. This is a, a 210 Townsman six-passenger station wagon, so it's it's not the sexiest uh, Chevy that came down the pike in '57, but it's certainly among the most representative. It, it sold extremely well, second best selling of the bunch, and of this particular um, style and trim level, there were 100 and, roughly 127,000 produced. And uh, you know it was it was built pretty well for cars of the day. They didn't rust out like Chrysler's did. They they seemed to uh, to handle the years better than Ford's. So a disproportionate number of them remained on the road just through a process of attrition. Really, um, you know that they just didn't fall apart as quickly. And then uh, in the early 70s, when American Graffiti came out, and uh, the 57 Chevy and other cars of the period really kind of exploded into popularity, really became the, the classics that they are today. Um, you know, at that point, any cars that were left were, were pretty pretty safely guarded by, by those who owned them, and you know, they became collector's items, which they had not been up until then. They had been um, very popular as hot rods. They had uh, they enjoyed, uh, you know, a, a long life as second, third, fourth cars for for folks just entering the market, uh, but uh, but they weren't really classics until 15 years after they they were produced. What does General Motors still have in the way of these old cars in museums or inventory somewhere? I could not tell you. Uh, I have no idea. You know, Chevrolet is oddly um, not well documented in the history department. Uh, there is, if you were to go to the GM History Center. You'd find uh, paperwork. Uh, you'd find old, you know, uh, designer drawings representing all the the various makes, except Chevrolet, the most popular huh. of the company's marks. And for whatever reason, there is not a stitch of paperwork related to the '57 Chevy at the GM History Center, which is really unfortunate because it, you know, it's it's a it has become kind of the most uh, the most iconic 
car of the 20th century. It's it's visual shorthand for an era. Uh, you know, you see a 57 Chevy in the opening of a movie, you know you're either in the 50s or you're in Havana. Well, I guess there is still a lot of these floating around. Well, uh, you know, the, the sexy models, namely uh, the convertible and the two-door sports coupe, uh, those are... Uh, extremely valuable now, you know, well into six figures for some of them. And, uh, and they are, yeah, they're, they're being protected like the crown jewels. You can still find a, a four door sedan, say, or even a two door sedan, a, the so-called post car, um, and all of the wagons with the exception of the nomad, you can still find those for a, you know, a, a decent price. You can, you could probably buy this car, the, the six passenger wagon in great shape, for under $30,000. Did it make you long for one when you were working on this project? Not even a little. <laughs> I've, I've had my share of old cars in the past, so I know what what sort of uh, curatorial responsibility it requires. And, and frankly, I'm, you know, I've just become um, far too pragmatic. I find that as I get older, um, I, I want my car to behave like a machine of interchangeable parts that I can depend on to get me to where I'm going. And, you know, I, I to have wind in my hair and, and um, a nice stereo, that's, that's all well and good. But really I'm, I'm looking at a car as transportation and, um, and I just do not have the, the patience or the storage space to devote, you know, to a, a 200 inch long behemoth like this. Earl Swift, the book is Autobiography, a classic car, an outlaw motorhead, and 57 years of the American dream. Earl, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me. Thank you. It's been good talking to you again. A pleasure. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 